0: Another day, another Elixir Talk.
1: Hello and welcome to Elixir Talk, the podcast where we discuss your questions. We mostly don't discuss your questions anymore. It was a good idea when we started, but we've mostly just been talking about our own stuff. Sorry, folks, just trying to be real about it. That being said, we're happy to be here with this airplane that I can't edit out in post-production, so we'll just kind of join with it. My name is Desmond Bowie, coming to you live from Venice Beach, California. I'm here with Chris Bell, coming to you from New York City.
0: Hello, Desmond. Hello, hello. I love that intro. Very different, very unique. Thanks, Chris. We try to mix it up from time to time. It's uh, one of your many talents.
1: Well, it's, it's one thing to say you want to mix it up, and then the mic starts rolling, and
0: then you're like, uh... Uh, uh. (laughs) you did a good job of carrying that one through though so uh and you're right we don't talk about people's questions um mostly let's address that i i would say that's mostly because we have lots of things that we want to talk about and but we do feel like the questions are super valuable so we love hearing from you so please keep sending in things um, we had a question five days ago which is more less of a question and more of just a statement about um, they liked our episode on Ecto and they really liked the pattern of creating embedded schemas um, and then they pointed us to a great library which is called Params uh, mm. which is kind of interesting um, and then someone built on top of it and implemented Farams um, <laughs> <laughs> There's also so, better params. <laughs> it's basically that, so we'll link to that in the show notes and link to the uh, to the GitHub thing here. But thank you, Account Moss, uh, doing that wrong, almost certainly doing that wrong. <laughs> but thank you for submitting, and we do love hearing from you. So please keep it up. So wait, so what do we use
1: these? What do we use these libraries for? Params and farams and
0: um, so they're about. Um, basically doing incoming param validation from um, uh, uh, mapping to your schema um, and then mapping to change set validations. So um, they basically that's, that's basically what this params library does um, and it just makes sure that the, the request payload coming in matches the defined schema um, in terms of required and optional types.
1: So this is interesting, because we do something like this at work, we, we do this sort of thing at work, where we take incoming params, and we immediately pass them to validators to make sure that the required params are there, that ordering is specified properly, that um, duplicate keys are not in there. And by duplicate keys, I mean, sometimes we have a player ID and an external player ID, you're allowed to pass in one but not both. And we have a couple cases of those, one but not both, uh, situations, so we can specify those in our validators. And it's cool. It's nice because you can you can catch these issues at your boundaries. And we've gone back and forth around, well, if we're catching them in the change sets at the schema layer, do we also have to catch them at the boundaries? And right now, the thinking is, yeah, it's a little nicer just to keep it out of your system. It's less error checking within your system. And it's helpful documentation for people consuming your API and i just wrote like a module or i mean of course it's a module i don't know how to describe it but it's this thing where we say use validator and then you pass it some options so you don't have to describe the whole schema and you just say well here are the fields here are the types and it's kind of a mini dsl that reduces our different validators into just a
0: couple of lines nice that that seems like a lot like what this is actually so maybe you should have just used that
1: Maybe, maybe. I guess the lesson is look around
0: before you roll your own. Yep, definitely. But um, So why do you like doing that at the edges of your system and not letting your change sets handle it? This decision was not made by me. Okay, so you're just getting out of that, answering that one, is that what you're saying?
1: <laughs> I'm not going to throw anyone under the bus except our CTO, who's probably listening to this episode, and other people on my team who are also listening to this episode and asking the same question. I've come around to it. I think it is nice to I mean first of all you don't have to litter your code with error checking. It is nice to describe or it is nice to catch these things at the boundary just as a general engineering principle because then you know the rest of your code is cleaner. You don't have to have error checks everywhere. So that's nice. Your validations live up at one level. Um do we Catch things in two levels? yeah, there is some overlap there, but by the time data gets to our schema, it's usually been massaged in some way and there's other things that we want to catch. our email is unique and so forth that we can't catch at the validator level. and it's also nice again when you're looking at well what are the what 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 is allowed in my API what what's required at this um, at this call site when I want to hit this route and usually that's obscured because that stuff is hidden several layers down at your data layer and so to have that described right at the top is nice for documentation purposes both for developers and for consumers
0: of the API Mm. I guess one other way of thinking about this is like you could think about it as um, the external data coming into your web request um, needs to be like normalized or something and then your internal services process that data in a different way so you kind of delegating responsibilities to different layers in your system that kind of onion skinning idea. Exactly, you can do things like someone's passing in a datetime
1: string. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to coerce it to a datetime at the boundary and then the rest of my system doesn't have to
0: think about it as a string, whatever. Right, what about using just like a JSON schema to define that? Um, can you break that down a little more for me? Um, so JSON schema is a language on top of JSON that Can define incoming, uh, so define the types associated with a JSON object. So, and you can mark things as required and and some things as not. Um, There's a full kind of spec around JSON schema as well. Um, And it seems pretty powerful to do something like this. You could basically describe all of your, especially if you're doing like an API, it's like the incoming body is most likely going to be a JSON payload. So your your types are always going to match like a JSON payload. Um, And then you could use a JSON schema to validate the params coming in um, from the outside world. Treat it as like that's everything to do with web um, and then go from there.
1: I think that could work for the basic case of our required params there, our optional params, well... (laughs) Uh, filter out non-optional, non-required params, whatever. But it doesn't give you such things as, like, have we specified legal keys for ordering results? Inserted at, updated at,
0: published at, that sort mm-hmm. of thing. I mean, you could probably do that through checking, like, all kinds of params at the top, but I see where you're coming from.
1: Yeah, once you get outside of those basic use cases, which it sounds like it's great for, then you're rolling uh, your own custom validators.
0: Mm-hmm. Potentially. That is true.
1: Yeah. And once in a while, we need to do something more sophisticated than this basic validator that I wrote. So it's nice to be able to break out of that and just go straight to the metal, as it were. Right.
0: Right. 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 But then use it wherever you can. And you can probably, I'm guessing, kind of compose these validators or something together.
1: We just wanted to be able to handle the common use cases that we have Hmm. and make those simple. And then anything that was. Ornery. We could just write ourselves. We didn't want to make some general purpose handle all the validations and
0: input. I do quite like this idea though, because it does really hoist it out of like whatever your service layer is, and now that thing doesn't have to concern itself with like are the params coming in from the outside world the the ones that I was expecting, you know? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, it's like the old Rails uh, strong parameters.
0: Yeah, right, right, right. Strong params. Strong, super
1: strong params.
0: Yeah. Cha- change set params basically like, <laughs> why do you uh,
1: think why do you think they called them strong params do you think they were like we need something compelling
0: <laughs> I think because it was just regular params right because params has a thing in Rails like params is associated with the the params hash that can be looked up through um, symbols and strings and like better params wasn't manly enough or something I hope it wasn't a gender thing um I don't know. Maybe they should have just called it mediocre params, because I don't think it was that great. Whoa, hot take. <laughs> no. Uh oh, man. it did the job. It did the job. So yeah, I can I can see why this is a good pattern though. So we'll link to Farams and Params in the show notes, as well as a JSON schema library that you might want to think about using as well. Cool yeah what else is going on desmond how's your uh elixir world coming along good question good question
1: we're about to kick off this um migration off
0: kubernetes that i've been talking about on the show for the last couple of months <laughs> uh, can i just before you carry on down that road can i just that was
1: the end of the road but yeah. oh that was the end of the road
0: oh wow okay well <laughs> To continue the road, um, I well, we over here and Frame IO have just been doing a migration to Kubernetes. So oh snap! You know, we're like passing ships in the night. Um, we have been able to stand up a Kubernetes cluster, and we have now got a clustered version of our real-time socket service running, and that's been a goal of our teams for the, like the last year um it was something that we weren't easily able to do uh via ECS for various limitations with that uh, containerization platform um but with kubernetes we basically um we were able to get it up and running through tons and tons of boilerplate obviously because kubernetes is there's a lot but anyway that aside tell me about it <laughs> um that aside we dropped in libcluster put the Kubernetes adapter on it, and boom, everything just worked. So, Bob's your uncle. Yeah. Well, I feel like we continuously shout out to Bitwalker, but serious shout out to Bitwalker on this one. Thanks, it, Paul. Yeah, no, LibCluster is great. Um, the fact that it just worked out of the box and everything just started clustering, and that was that. So,
1: yeah. Do you want to speak to our listeners a little bit about what LibCluster is?
0: Sure um so libcluster is basically a uh it's a library for connecting your nodes together so forming cluster of clusters of erlang nodes um it basically gives you different choices of strategies in which to do that so the ones that come out of the box um they have a kubernetes version of this uh a kubernetes strategy um they have a gossip based protocol for doing it an epmd1 um so there's all these different strategies that come in the box and essentially all it does is abstraction layers over service discovery so that when you when you put lots of machines in a cluster they can start talking to each other discover each other and then those nodes can all connect together
1: but so isn't i thought elixir and erlang had clustering built into it
0: yes So they do. Um, And that is through EPMD. You are right. Um, Now, the problem is, is if you're in a containerized environment, um, they get some funky things with port mapping and basically this idea where you're having like dynamic nodes coming up and down. So you need a way to say like, hey, I'm a node and I'm online. And then all the other nodes are like, oh, there's a new node online. Um, And basically in the Kubernetes way of doing that, it's a poll to its metadata API every ten seconds. It just keeps checking and seeing, like, to see if uh, there's any new nodes available. If there are, then it's going to start connecting to those nodes. So, quite a simple mechanism, but uh, very effective. So, it sounds like we want to
1: use LibCluster if we're in a containerization.
0: Set. That's, so that's not strictly true. You could, you could definitely use it in setups aside from containerization. Uh, so I think some of the benefit of it, it will do a lot of the, um, cluster healing for you out of the box, which is nice. Um, so that, what that means is like, if, if connections get unset, uh, that all the other nodes will disconnect, things like that. So, while Erlang and OTP give you some of this, it doesn't give you all of the functionality on top. So
1: so if I were clustering, would I ever not want to use this?
0: Um, I don't know the answer to that because I haven't done any clustering outside of this kind of dockerized world. So I wouldn't want to speak to it. Um, but there are definitely some benefits in doing so. So I think you should check it out if you're considering to do clustering. Okay. Yeah. Um cool. Yeah, and honestly, it was so easy to to make it work, which was really, really cool. So we just had to change a little bit about the cookie that's shared across all of the hosts, uh, put that in a sequence file, and then just make sure we had like a selector, which tells it when it queries the Kubernetes API, like what the service name is, pretty much. And that was it. Did you ever see
1: the Sesame Street when Cookie Monster has his first cookie?
0: Um, no, Desmond, I did not see the, the <laughs> Sesame Street where Cookie Monster had his first cookie.
1: Well, <laughs> we'll link to this in the show notes. <laughs> There's this episode where he has this flashback to when he was this, like, baby cookie monster, and he has his first cookie. And the, the funniest thing is that in the flashback, as a baby monster, um his eyes are, like, normal. They're straight ahead. And I don't know if you all know Cookie Monster, but his eyes are sort of like jangly and loose whatever. And his eyes are normal and he just kind of looks around and you don't, you notice something is a little off, like it's a little different, but then you only realize it when he bites into the cookie and he's like, ah, and then his eyes go crazy. <laughs> and that's why his eyes are that way. And of course it was never the same after that for him. I wonder, <laughs> I wonder if before he had the first cookie, he, he was just monster.
0: And then he became Cookie Monster. Became
1: the Cookie Monster. Yeah. I mean, in in contrast to that, so I go as Desmond Monster. I was not Monster before I became Desmond Monster. You were just Desmond. Although interestingly, Desmond uh, is an Irish name, which literally means from South Munster, which is a, a county in Ireland.
0: So you're from South Munster, Monster. Yeah. Nice. Great.
1: Yeah, that's 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 what it is.
0: There we go. So, how's your migration off of Kubernetes going?
1: Well, it hasn't started yet. Uh, Uh, I said we're about to do it. It's going to kick off uh, the next sprint. So we'll have a lot of exciting stuff to talk about once that's gone down. I know that (laughs) you've all been with us through our research journey and me complaining a lot about our setup. So things are finally about to happen. Don't
0: worry. It's all going to pay off. I still think you're wrong. (laughs) (laughs) I think Kubernetes is great from what I've seen so far. I don't know. Seems great. But well you know
1: that's just like your opinion man
0: i know well i'm sure once we're actually running this thing in anger so like right now we're only running it um we're running it in dev and then we're setting up a um kind of like a shadow production cluster that doesn't have any data on it right now but um just to see how this thing's going to perform and then we'll start moving services over one by one once we have proved out this model um and yeah what's your timeline for that migration um, probably over the next few weeks, actually, just the first service, um, and then closely monitor it, um, make sure that we haven't regressed in any of our performance metrics, uh, make sure our AWS bill hasn't gone up, and then evaluate it as a team to see if that's like exactly what we want. Um, and then we've got to do some ops training for everyone to actually be able to support this thing in the wild. So, oh, yeah. you know, like any migration, there are many steps, so... We are at the beginning of our journey.
1: Well, we should circle up. I mean, I'm sure we'll be talking about this for a while, but we should circle up and have a thing in a couple of weeks, couple of months to see how it's going and how our different uh, paths have worked out for us.
0: <laughs> it's kind of ridiculous that we're doing, uh, yeah, both. So there we go. Well, but it's cool because, you
1: know, now we can argue about something instead of always being like, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: That's true. That's a very good point. Yeah.
1: Hmm. I think we're, so we got some feedback from someone once that was like, you guys agree too much. And it's more interesting when there's different opinions. And I think we've taken that maybe a little too far or a little too close to heart. (laughs) I mean, I think you want different, different points of view and, you know, it's good to have a discussion on these things. We don't, you don't have to
0: have that. No, I don't think we have to have that at all. I think, uh, I think it's You know, sometimes we share the same opinions because we've seen similar things as well. That's not always a bad thing. No. Yes. Cool. Yeah.
1: So I have a question for you. For me. For you. How long, this is not the question, how long have you been working with Elixir? Oh,
0: I guess it's over three years now. So after three years, how does it feel? I have this weird thing where, so I, like, f- I've been writing a lot of JavaScript, by the way. I think I've said this on like basically every podcast the last few right, months, right. but I've really been writing a lot of JavaScript um, just to help out the team at times. But every time I dip my toe back into the Elixir world to either review some code, help someone else out, or like maybe do a small patch myself, I am reminded of what, a a great language it is to write. And I still feel that day in, day out. I've like, that's weird. I, I mean, I definitely had that with Ruby for a really long time, but now with Elixir, I, yeah, I dip back in and I'm like, this is just such a nice language to write every day.
1: Is it the ergonomics? Is it functional programming?
0: I think a lot of it is to do with functional programming, but then I think a lot of the, the language itself, um, kind of makes me feel like that as well i think there's just some nice kind of patterns in the language and i think some nice idioms that we've adopted that just make it really nice to work with you know mm-hmm. so yeah that's how i feel about it still i'm still as enamored as i was three years ago actually perhaps more so because i've actually seen it be proved you know like yeah. when we started this like like we didn't have a production project in elixir when uh three over three years ago now um We were just exploring it and then we managed to get our first production project and that's when things really kind of changed. But I think at this point, I'm like, I've shipped four big production Elixir apps um, and obviously have a lot of learnings from that. But I I feel really confident in our technology choices at this point. Um, And that's a good thing. It's like as someone who leads an engineering team, like having confidence in the thing you've picked and feeling pretty good at night about the thing that you've picked and not being woken up all the time through alarms and whatnot. um, Yeah. It's, it's a good feeling. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And by the way, I I would just say like, I am obviously insanely biased and, uh, and I'm a huge evangelist for this language, but like, the rest of my team who have adopted Elixir as well, I would say feel the same. They like writing it. they like no one has said like, "Oh, I hate doing this," or like have got, has got really like, "Oh, this bit's really crappy." I'm sure there are definitely some edges we run into, but um, yeah, I think the sentiment throughout the team is just like they enjoy they enjoy doing this day to day that That's a good thing.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that the day-to-day experience is what matters a lot to me um just in general like little things are very important to me because most of life is like these little moments like you live life kind of moment by moment as opposed to uh going from major event to major event i mean those are cool but they're sort of few and far between and ordinary life is where it happens and so i think ordinary life should be interesting and fun and pleasant and i organize a lot of my personal life around that principle but that's something that I like about the Elixir ecosystem. And yeah, like just little things are pleasant. Uh, small stuff is nice. It's not that, oh, well, once we get this whole system up and running, then it's stable or then it's fast or then it's whatever. It's just every step along the way is cool. And so you're enjoying the journey and you're not sort of waiting for some big payoff at the end.
0: Right. Oh, Definitely. Yeah, I think like, you know, we've been running Elixir in production here at Frame for nearly a year. It'll be a year like next in two months. Uh, So it's been 10 months. And uh, I think for us, it's been a, a, a really, really solid experience. And the team that has been building on top of it and leveraging what we built have just been moving so fast with new features and delivering tons of value back to the business. And like, you know, I I can't really ask much more. So, Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And I think people are enjoying it as they're doing it as well. So Mm -hmm. win, 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 win.
1: Awesome, man. That's great. I mean, you know, I think some people who are starting on their Elixir journey have been through other languages and they've sort of seen the hype and come out the other end. And, uh, it's an open question. About, well, what does this look like in the future? And not a lot of us have been working in this language for a long time. And there have been talks at conferences recently about so, like, here's Elixir several years later. And we've described what does an Elixir app look like as it gets bigger. I mean, sure, you can spin up your Hello World Phoenix application, but how does it scale? Like, how does not the, uh, how, not how does it scale in terms of speed, but how does your logic scale? How does the organization scale, the code organization? you know, how do the concepts grow and still be maintainable um, and a, uh, reasonable? So I I think it's important to talk more about what things look like down the road so that people can know what to expect.
0: Definitely, definitely. Yep.
1: Cool, well, I'm feeling pretty good. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, feeling me too. Confident on a, about my choices. <laughs> I'm on an Elixir high now, so uh, uh, yeah. yeah. Always a pleasure to talk about it. And uh as always, we'd love to hear your experiences, things that you've been doing, and if there's anything that you disagree with where, you know, you've had a crappy experience of running this thing in production. I'm guessing not if you're listening to this podcast. But uh alas, would be good to hear from you regardless. So it's it's always good to hear from you. Definitely. So, thank you so much for listening. As always, um, you can catch our show notes on the episode page for wherever you get this podcast um, and we would love if you could rate our show and spread it to all your friends as well um, if you want to get in touch with us you can reach out at elixirtalk.com, or you can send in a question via our github page which is github.com slash elixirtalk slash or you can find us on twitter which is twitter.com slash as well sweet yeah, we'll uh, we'll see you next time, and uh, keep elixir. Keep elixir. Yeah. Keep elixir. Yes, <laughs> <elixuring. laughs> I love the way you forgot.
1: <laughs> you sort of gave me a look, like uh, is it time to do it? Yeah, okay. That was funny.